Good afternoon, Patriots. You are listening to Living with Liberty, your source for common sense and truth. I am your host, Ryan. Today I'll have a State of the Union recap, the CDC waving the next white flag in the COVID battles, and I'll be giving out a new award next on Living with Liberty. So I guess I've finally made it as a podcaster. I hadn't checked my iTunes reviews for a while, so on a whim I checked it last week. I must have hurt someone's feelings along the way, for there on my iTunes ratings was my first one-star review. More of a rating, I guess. Whoever left it didn't leave a write-up, just the one star. I would have figured that they would have also tried to trash the show with some diatribe of a written review, but nah, they couldn't be bothered to do that. They said, we'll just leave a one-star review and move on. We got bigger fish to troll. I was really looking forward to reading to you all what I'm guessing what would have made for some good laughs, but Captain One Star rating here deprived us of whatever they were triggered about and whatever comedic joy we would have been able to glean from it. All right, let's talk State of the Union, or as I have taken to calling it, Biden's State of Denial speech. I tuned in for about half an hour, and in that short half an hour, ended up just getting mad. The first thing I was mad at was all the virtue-signaling politicians out there with their Ukraine flag pins and scarves and other clothing that looked like the Ukrainian flag. I found it amazing that Kamala didn't take the opportunity to virtue signal as well. That seems to really be in her wheelhouse. And it's shocking because it would have been better than sitting behind the president looking like a live-action poo emoji with bigger shoulder pads than an NFL linebacker. Where were all the American flag pins and clothing and uh, pride, really? When our country was under attack by our own citizens, our cities being burned and looted by petulant children, where were all the politicians donning American-themed wardrobe and pins and waving flags when our soldiers were attacked and 13 were killed in the botched exit from Afghanistan? Nowhere to be found. Our politicians don't care about our country. And you know what? The way the Republicans act goes for them, too. Both sides seem to have little regard for our country, and honestly, it pisses me off. They can go out there with the Ukraine flag pins, Ukraine-themed wardrobe, but they can't be bothered to put our country first. Pisses me off. Our politicians, left or right, Republican or Democrat, won't be caught dead wearing anything American-themed. I wouldn't be surprised if they requested their coffins be draped in the Chinese flag upon death. Now, I don't want to be mistaken here. Don't get me wrong. I'm praying for Ukraine and the Ukrainian people every day. It is abhorrent that Russia invaded a sovereign nation. I support the Ukrainians, and I support giving them the weaponry, the aid, the intelligence they need to beat back the Russian advance, their attempted Russian takeover of their country. I say attempted, they haven't taken it over yet. 
like I said, it's this is just abhorrent that we have a nation that has invaded another sovereign nation because the madman in charge of Russia, who has his own polling issues at home, is delusional in thinking that he will restore the glory of his beloved Soviet Union. And by doing this, he will somehow cement his place as a great leader in the history books. Again, I support Ukraine. I, we need to do all we can. It's not our ground war yet. Not until they attack a NATO ally. Not until, if by some uh, stroke of God, NATO calls an emergency meeting and admits the Ukraine into NATO, then we get involved with, with, with the ground troops, with the you know our air force, with our, our uh, navy and, and marine might. Until then, we give them we give them aid, we give them weapons. That's got to be our involvement for right now. There's some out there that you know disagree with me. That that's fine. That's our you know we have two differing viewpoints. That's cool. If our elected officials though. If they, what would happen if they would show as much concern for our country, show as much concern for our country as they do other countries that give jobs to the deadbeat kids of American vice presidents, we'd be much better off as a nation. Why, why is it so hard to put our country and our people first? We're the ones that elected you numbskulls. The fact that our elected officials can't be bothered to show American pride, but will virtue signal at the drop of a hat is appalling. The fact that they will do this while our border is being invaded and overrun is appalling. There's more concern for a foreign nation and their border integrity than our own. And again, where the Republicans, you know what, the ones that are up, vote them out too. I am so sick of these clowns. If they're not standing up for our border first, for our country first, vote them out, period. Get a primary together, make them work. All right, moving on. Moving on to the, the speech itself. Now, it was full of the usual Biden lies, stammers, stutters, and incoherent words and phrases. Can anybody tell me where the Uranians are from? I mean, did they come here on a spaceship, or where did they come from? Who are they? Should we be worried about them? I don't know. Joe Biden, maybe not. Joe Biden didn't seem to be worried about the Uranians, but who knows? Anyway, how about... Who, who is it exactly that we are supposed to get? How about that? Who, who are we supposed? He said, "Go get him." Who, who is he? I don't know. Putin? Uh, she? I don't know. Trump? Probably Trump. He said, "Go get him." Trump? It's Biden. Who knows? All right. Anyway, as I said, I killed a few dozen brain cells watching the first half hour. Luckily, I had to go pick up my kid from his driving lesson. So I 
was able to turn that off. I, I come back home and <laughs> my wife had it, had it off the TV. She got bored and disgusted with it and just turned it off too. So, uh, you know, we've, we've still got most of our brains intact here anyway, but for, for you, for my dedicated audience, I killed a few more a dozen brain cells reading the transcript. So I knew what else Biden lied about or, or tried to take credit for or, or talked about the wish list of things he wished he was strong enough to do during the speech. So let's pick a few of these apart. All right, first and foremost, the tough talk on Russia and Putin. Now, let's be real here. Th- this talk is more of what Biden wished he would have done in November than what's actually going going on today. Russia was amassing their military at the border, getting ready to pounce on the Ukraine. Joe did nothing. Then when Putin did give word, Biden put down his butterscotch pudding long enough to cobble together some toothless sanctions. Putin doesn't care about sanctions. He's most assuredly taken steps to insulate himself from them. Namely, I'm sure he's got, you know, most assuredly got some sort of partnership with China going on. That, that's that's the word. I, I need to dig into that and see exactly what. But it's obvious, you know, if you look at it strategically, China is building this Belt and Road. They have this Belt and Road initiative. The Belt and Road from China to Europe runs right through Russia. So uh, you can put two and two together there and and for the time being make some assumptions that that they're probably working together because how is China going to get to Europe with, with, you know, their railway, their roads, whatever else they want to build, the investment they're putting out there. No, no, and so there's that piece. So Biden's or Putin has, I'm sure, insulated himself as much as he can from sanctions. And you know what? He doesn't even care about the sanctions at this point because he's a madman. He's he's uh, got tunnel vision on one thing, and that is to restore the Soviet Union. It seems. And, and let's think about the sanctions them, themselves. Who do sanctions really hurt anyway? We put sanctions on somebody, who does it hurt? Well, the the sanctions will hurt the citizenry of of that country the most, in this case, Russia. Now, will sanctions on the oligarchs pressure Putin to back off? Maybe. Will it? Maybe. But at this point, Putin seems to not be living in the real world. Seems to be in some fantasy land. So it's not likely that even the oligarchs will be able to change his mind. Will the sanctions lead to a revolt among the people of Russia to overthrow Putin? Uh, Also very unlikely. Now there are protests opposing Putin. Uh, There's been reports of these growing across Russia. Uh, I think we all know that uh, you think we have election issues. (laughs) I, th- I think Russia's probably a hundred times worse than than what our election issues are. There's, like I said, Putin's got his own polling problems. He's not popular amongst the people of Russia. 
will sanctions lead to anything uh, from the Russian populace that would lead to a lead to an overthrow of Putin? Unlikely. Uh, the sanctions aren't going to drive the people to go and try an overthrow of Vladimir Putin. Just isn't going to happen. The sanctions are going to hurt the people. It's going to make their life tougher. Now, remember, Russia is basically a third world country with a first world military and first world loosely. I mean, we've seen over the last week or so uh, just utter incompetence in in, uh, the Russian military and lack of training, everything else. Um, You don't get your, if you're really trying to, if you really have your, uh, your machine well oiled. Uh, you're not stopping a forty mile convoy at the border of of uh, the country you're trying to to invade. So there's obviously been some problems there. Um, sanctions aren't going to. Uh, they're not going to stop that. Putin understands one thing and one thing only: that's strength and that's violence. Now, why didn't he pop off with Trump in office? Trump told Putin to FAFO. And Putin tested Trump. There was a mercenary group uh, operating in in Syria, a Russian mercenary group in Syria. Putin tested Trump by not pulling that mercenary group out of Syria when Trump told him to. Trump Trump said, uh, if you don't pull this group out, I'm going to take them out. Well, the mercenaries weren't pulled out by Putin. Trump held uh, firm to his word and eliminated them. And that's a story you don't see. And, and what happened after that? Putin didn't mess around after that. He knew Trump was serious and he knew Trump was not going to be predictable in his response. But now, now, we've got weak-ass Joe Biden in office. And with weak-ass Joe Biden in office, Putin isn't worried about anything. He bring on the sanctions, he says. I don't care. Joe, you're not going to do anything. You're... You 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 sit here and go on TV, and Joe Biden's telling the world what he's going to do. And then it takes him two weeks to do it, and by then, countermeasures are put in place. And it's because of this, because we've got a bumbling fool in the White House who tells everybody what our plans are. Putin continues to be emboldened by this weakness and incompetence of our elected officials and appointed bureaucrats at the top levels of our government and continues to do what he wants and continues to to threaten uh, nuclear war, which is a whole other subject. I, that's the great equalizer here. The threat of nuclear war. That's the other thing that I think is, as we look at some of, some of the... Um, uh, different points of view on whether we should be on the ground in Ukraine or not. That's 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 probably the biggest limiting factor right now. If I look at it this way, you know, if if Russia wasn't a nuclear power, we would probably have sent in at least some some uh, bombing runs or something like that, and and had the Russian army beat back within a couple of days. I kind of believe that in my heart, that if we weren't talking about a nuclear power here, we'd be looking at uh, 
Iraq Gulf War One, where we just rolled in and the Iraqis put down their their you know the Iraqi army basically folded. I, I think we'd see the same thing here, but the the nuclear weapons are a great equalizer. They have they they require thinking twice about the strategy here, and that's why I say it's not our ground war until our NATO allies are attacked. The last thing we want to do, and now is it unlikely Putin would use them? I I would say we got to take them seriously. I don't know that he would use them because then there would be retaliation all over the you know from all over the world from other you know allied nuclear powers and we'd have mutually assured destruction do but i wouldn't put it past them at this point and we have to take that seriously and it has to be taken into consideration when we talk about jumping in on the ground in ukraine just my two cents there on that fact of the matter is putin continues to be emboldened by weakness emboldened by toothless sanctions I just saw something today that some world cat club or something isn't allowing uh, Russian citizens to participate in whatever cat show or whatever's going on. I mean, really, that's that's not letting Russians participate in the global cat show is is going to get Putin to stop. Okay, that Putin understands one thing. That's that's strength and that's violence. We have to have the strength. We have to help the Ukrainians have the strength. We have to arm them so they're strong to beat Putin's army back. That that's bottom line is where that goes for right now. Now how this unfolds, you know, the world is watching, we'll see. Um like everything else it's very tumultuous times right now and very uncertain times. The best we can do is is uh, pray for the Ukrainian people. As a country, we can support them. As a country, we support our own uh, and pray for our own military uh, personnel that are nearby, that are in the bordering NATO countries that are on alert, that that are watching, that are helping. That is, I think, right now, as I look at things, the best thing we can do for the situation. Now, moving on to the rest of the speech here, after um, Biden let us know about what he was dreaming about doing to Russia. The rest of the speech is nothing more than lies and things the Biden circus wishes they were competent enough to execute. One of the things he mentioned was how prepared we and the world were to combat the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, this is what Biden said uh, in his, in his uh, speech. He said this, we prepared extensively and carefully. We spent months building coalitions of other freedom-loving nations in Europe and the Americas to, from America to the Asian and African continents to confront Putin. That's, and like I said, I took this from the transcript, so you've got the, the, the Biden stutter in there where he lost his place. Now, thinking about that statement, let, let's let's think about this. It's never mind here that Russia had been amassing troops and equipment at the Ukrainian border since November. 
So why wasn't any action taken then? Why weren't sanctions being threatened, drawn up then at that point in time when there were uh, was a buildup of troops along the Russian-Ukrainian border? Why weren't sanctions being threatened then as a warning shot to Putin and his oligarch buddies? Where were Ukraine's European allies as this was happening? If Biden's incompetent State Department was building coalitions and preparing for Russian aggression, sanctions would have been at the ready to be imposed the minute Russian troops breached the Ukrainian border. Ukraine would have had more weaponry and aid than they would have known what to do with. November was four months ago. I'm sure that an emergency meeting could have been called to hammer out supplying Ukraine with nuclear weapons so they could have the deterrent against the Russians. The honest truth is the only coalition Biden was building was with Jell-O so he could keep the flow of butterscotch pudding going. That's the only coalition he was in. Nobody was doing a damn thing as troops were building up along the border. They were too busy still uh, denigrating our own country, calling us racist and white supremacists and whatever else. They were too busy because Trump was still living and is still living rent-free in their heads. They couldn't focus on anything else going on. There were four months. November was four months ago. They had plenty of time, even for a bunch of, of countries and world bodies that can't get anything done, they could have went into full-out crisis mode, come to quick consensus on how to help Ukraine. They could have said, okay, we see this building up. Let's let them into NATO. I get that part of the, the whole uh, issue with Putin is the threat of Ukraine joining NATO and how he sees that as a uh, threat to Russian sovereignty. Like I said, the guy's a madman. There's no way Ukraine joining NATO would be a threat to Russian sovereignty, a threat to their national security. I've yet to see a NATO country attack and invade another country unprovoked. Four months have gone by. There could have been emergency meetings called amongst the NATO members to to get Ukraine admitted via uh, admitted to NATO via that emergency meeting there could have been pl- there was plenty of time to mobilize resources for Ukraine i don't the, just absolute crap here just uh, I, it's just so frustrating sometimes that we've we've got a, a president an administration that will sit here and continually lie to us as if we can't see this stuff with our own eyes. We got a president who still thinks it's 1986 and we don't have the ability to actually go out and quickly find out what's going on for ourselves, to view video of what's on the video on the spot of what's actually going on, that we don't have the ability to, to tune into a live stream of someone on the ground to what's actually going on. They, they still think they can continue to gaslight and lie us and lie to us. Just ridiculous.
They have four months to fix the problem, to deter Russia. They didn't do it. And Biden takes the opportunity four months later to now all of a sudden talk tough and act like we had some sort of grand plan in place when it's apparent because there are Russian troops in the Ukraine, it's apparent nobody had a plan. Everybody was sitting around with their thumb up their ass, not paying attention. All right, the next piece of, of Biden, Biden's maddening speech. So now we're going to tap the strategic oil reserves again. Gas prices are spiraling out of, uh, uh, out of control. So Biden said, we're, go- we're going to release 60 million barrels of oil from the strategic oil reserves. Now, if, if you remember back, I covered the last time they res, re, uh, released oil from the strategic oil reserves to combat rising gas prices. If you remember back then, I said it was like two days of supply. That's two days of consumption that when they did that time. 60 million barrels is three days of consumption in the United States alone. And the way he, he spun this was it was going to be 60 million barrels from strategic oil reserves from all over the world. So it might not even be 60 million barrels that impacts the United States alone. It might be 60 million barrels that goes worldwide. Just some, some sort of like a little kiddie pool full of oil here. 60 million barrels is three days of consumption just in the U.S. Now, 60 million is a large number. And when people hear it, see, that's what they're doing here. Once you understand... Because most of the time they'll use percentages because the percentages will make things sound really bad or really good, depending on the narrative. When they start using actual numbers, it's because the actual number will have an impact on what people think. 60 million is a large number, and when people hear it, they think it's going to have an impact on our gas prices because, oh, 60 million, that's a... That's a really big number. The thing is, 60 million barrels is not going to have an impact on gas prices. Just like when the 40 million barrels the regime released last year had zero impact on our gas prices, this 60 million barrels will have no impact either. Now, this next part's going to get a little numbery. It's going to be a lot of numbers here, but try and follow me. I want to break this down quickly for you. So you have more knowledge when someone tries to say, well, we released 60 million barrels of oil from the strategic reserves. That's going to drop our prices or why aren't our prices prices dropping? Well, let's break it down. Why? So if you think about a barrel of oil, just one barrel of oil, it's 42 gallons. That 42 gallons of oil, of crude oil, does not all get refined into gasoline. There's a multitude of products that uh, are uh, created from refined oil. Now, we look at that 42-gallon barrel of oil. The yield of gasoline is 46% of that barrel. So out of a 42-gallon barrel of oil, we'll get 
roughly 19 gallons of gasoline out of out of that one barrel of oil. That won't even fill the tank of my truck or the van uh, or my van or any of your SUVs. One barrel of oil will not fill your tank. A, ref a refined, a one barrel of oil refined won't even fill our gas tanks. Now the next largest product yielded from a barrel of oil, from a refined barrel of oil, is diesel at 26% of that crude oil, or roughly 11 gallons. Now, think about a semi-truck. Most semi-trucks have two 100-gallon fuel tanks. Some of them are bigger, but for the sake of argument and ease of argument, let's say most semi-trucks have two 100-gallon fuel tanks on them. Now, to fill a semi-truck, you're looking at refining 20 barrels of oil to fill up both tanks of one semi-truck. Now, let's throw in there how many vehicles, because eh, maybe at the surface, well, that doesn't sound too bad. But let's, let's have a point of reference here. And for that reference, there are 289 million passenger vehicles on the road, cars, trucks, um, vans, motorcycles, 289 million of those on the road, and about 4 million semi-trucks. Now it starts to come into focus on, well, actually 60 million barrels. If you're doing a quick math here on what I said you get out of this, where 60 million barrels isn't going to do anything. Exactly. It won't do anything to help fill our vehicles. It won't do anything for gas prices. All this is, it's because people get enamored by large numbers. It's a marketing trick. They don't realize that 60 million barrels of oil is a drop in the bucket. It isn't even enough to fuel up all the vehicles currently on our roads. Yet this regime tries to peddle it as if they are doing us a great service by tapping the strategic oil reserves. They're, they're just like, hey, here's some oil. Now shut up, plebeians. That, that's their message here. Just here's a little oil. Shut up. Prices will go down. Quit paying attention to us. The other lie, or another lie, I should say, and, and this is the Democrats' uh, old go-to when it comes to economics and taxing people and whatever else they want to try and do to to take our money they continue to peddle the lie of trickle down economics they try to peddle this as if as if it's a an actual theory of economics now the last time i checked and being in the business world i i kind of tend to keep up on on economic news the last I checked, there is no such economic theory that is taught. I, My business journals and articles I read, nobody is talking about trickle-down economics. There's no trickle-down economics that, that is mentioned from supplier, let's say from supplier to supplier. There, there's no such thing, yet the Democrats continue to peddle this lie of trickle-down economics. And on top of this, within the speech, 
not only was the, the trickle-down mentioned, old Joe continues to try and peddle the lie that the tax cuts, the Trump tax cuts, were only for top earners. He said this, For the past 40 years, we were told that tax breaks for those at the top and benefits would trickle down and everybody, everyone would benefit. But that trickle-down theory led to a weaker economic growth, lower wages, bigger deficits, and a widening gap between the top and everyone else in the in nearly a century. Again, the uh, the transcript uh, beautiful captures every Biden stutter. Uh, just wonderful. I look at this. I'm like seriously. There's no such thing as trickle down. You know what? Let's go back. Let's teach actual economics in school and actual economic theories so people quit buying this crap. There was, there's never been trickle-down economics. There never will be a theory of trickle-down economics because it doesn't exist. I have yet to see anyone who thinks the trickle-down theory of economics exists explain what that theory actually is and how it actually works. Tax cuts work because the consumer is the most effective and efficient spender of money. The consumer is the most effective and efficient uh, allocator of resources in the economy, not the government. Taxes are a waste of capital that could be more effectively invested elsewhere to help the economy grow. And oh, by the way, Here's a thought, tax less, more money for corporations to pay people more because taxes are an expense to a business. But these economic buffoons don't understand the basics of economics. They'd rather rob us blind for their half-baked programs that do more harm than good. And there was also uh, another, uh, just another, just beautiful gem from Biden on how he's, how to battle inflation. He said this, I think I have a better idea to fight inflation. Lower your costs, not your wages. Does this man have any idea how the real world operates? I mean, I realize he's not there anymore. I, I get that. But does he have any idea on how things actually work? It's the reckless spending by our government, again, both parties complicit. That is what has our costs going up. We have more money than we have goods to absorb the money. And then, oh, by the way, the Fed has just sat with their thumbs up their butts for the last who knows how long watching inflation rise when they're the ones that can control it by increasing interest rates. Costs are up due to basic supply and demand principles. We have a ton of money out there, which is driving a ton of demand for goods and services, but that supply of goods and services is nowhere near where it needs to be to satisfy the demand. We don't have enough workers We still have restaurants around here where the dining rooms aren't open or open infrequently because there's not enough workers. 
I was just in the grocery store yesterday, and there's still plenty of empty shelves. Scarcity has driven up input costs, which has driven up the price of the finished good. That's where inflation is coming from. It's up and down the value chain. I can tell you, having been in corporate America now for 20, 20 years, 20 plus years, corporate America is constantly looking at how to lower their costs. And outside of the, the recession of 2008, 2009, they don't do it by lowering people's wages. And anyone that works in a business knows that cost reductions are typically a focus area, especially for large multinationals. I'm not saying they don't, uh, when they're looking to cut costs, I'm not saying they don't downsize. I'm not saying they don't cut positions. But what I have yet to see is we need to lower our our costs So now you have to take a pay cut. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But to hear Biden say this makes it seem like it's more common than it actually is. And I've I've worked for five companies now in, call it my adult career, six companies. Not a one, when even when we're battling to lower costs, to preserve cash, not a one, except for during the, the the big housing meltdown, it's the only time a company I worked for asked for a pay cut and it was temporary. It was temporary. Once we were out of the woods and in a good position, people got their payback to what they were making before the recession. Anybody that works in a especially large multinational knows cost reduction is a focus area. The market will only bear a certain price. And if a company is going to meet that price and remain profitable, that's the key. The market sets the price. What are, what are you and I willing to pay for a good or service? It's up to the company to figure out how they remain profitable doing that. In order to do that, in order to meet the price and have a healthy profit, companies have to control and reduce costs. Now I'll say this also about this part of the speech. The way Biden uh, talked about lower your costs, we're going to do this, it has me worried. To me, if you go and read this part of the speech, I'll I'll link it, in the description box. This part of the speech has me worried. It seems to be a signal that this incompetent regime is going to take a larger role in the economy. They want to take a larger role in controlling the economy as a supply chain professional. I can, I already see it as, as they talk about, well, we're going to do this with the ports and do this with the trucks. And no, they want to, I am I am very concerned 
that they want to take a larger role in the economy as opposed to letting the market forces work as planned. Listen to what Biden's ideas here are, are to reduce prices and what they want. And just like I said, seems to be a signal that they want to, to control the economy. Here's the first one he said, or uh, first idea Biden laid out. Said this, first, cut the cost of prescription drugs. We pay more for the same drug produced by the same company in America than any other country in the world. Well, let's think about this for a second. How do we reduce the cost of prescription drugs? It's not by government subsidizing it. Say that three times fast. It's by looking at the whole value chain and see what the non-value added inputs are and cut those out. That's how you reduce the cost of prescription drugs. How about this? How about we cut out the insurance companies and other middlemen in the administration of prescription drugs? Insurance companies and whatever other middlemen are in there do nothing. They add no value to the overall process. There's no reason that it can't go from uh, drug company direct sale to the consumer. There's so much waste in the system, so many hands in the cookie jar that are taking administrative dollars that the cost just continue to go up. Because remember, all those administrative, when you're talking about administrative costs, that's all labor input. That's all having to pay somebody to look at that and do something. Here, here's the other thing we should do. We should think about cutting the length of time a patent is good on a new prescription drug from the 20 years patents are good to somewhere around five so that generics can be manufactured much sooner, which will then drop the cost of prescription drugs. If you have a winner of a drug, it'll make its R&D money back in the first couple of years and then some. You don't need it to be exclusively manufactured by Pfizer for 20 years before we can get a generic. You want to lower prescription drug costs, lower the patent on a new, uh, the length of time a patent's good on a new drug to around five years, and then we can get more, uh, get generics manufactured and into the market much sooner. All right, here's, here's the, next, the next bit uh, from Biden here. He said this, and while we're at it, I know we have a great uh, disagreement on the floor with this, but let's let Medicare negotiate the price of prescription drugs. They already set the price for VA drugs. No, absolutely not. No. Medicare negotiating prices is part of the reason why our healthcare costs are bloated today. Anytime government gets involved in the marketplace, everyday consumers pay the price because government has coercive power in setting prices that are typically going to be well below the floor of what the market would set if it were left to play out. When you have the artificial floors being set by government, where healthcare, in this case, where healthcare systems with that accept Medicare are losing money on Medicare patients, you have the government setting an artificial floor, it leaves a gap in profitability. When this happens, Companies have to make up the difference somewhere, and that somewhere is the everyday consumer. And that somewhere is within our premiums that go up year after year 
over and above the rate of inflation, over and above the rate that people typically get a raise at. All right, the next thing he wanted to, Biden wanted to bring in is the American uh, American Rescue Plan. He said, he said uh, this, look, the American Rescue Plan is helping millions of families on Affordable Care Act plans to save them $2,400 a year on their health premiums. Let's close the coverage gap and make those savings permanent. No thanks, this will only add to inflationary pressure in the healthcare uh, market, and it will price more and more people out of the market. There'll be more and more people who opt to not take coverage because it keeps getting more and more expensive because the government keeps subsidizing tax breaks with money we don't have. And then just when you thought you were going to get out of this without some sort of uh, climate change virtue signaling, guess again. Yeah, Biden had this to say about it. And second, let's cut energy costs for families an average of $500 a year by combating climate change. Let's provide an investment and tax credit to weatherize your home and your business to be energy efficient and get a tax credit for it. Double America's clean energy production in solar, wind, and much more. Lower the price of electric vehicles, saving another $80 a month that you're not going to have to pay at the pump. Well, who's, who's, it's more like $80 a fill up. And if you fill up weekly or even multiple times a week, I, where's this guy get his numbers from? Anyway, what do I see here? More inflation, that's what. Here's a tax credit that we are, we are actually going to have to print the cash for because we're not going to reduce our budget elsewhere to pay for it. We're just going to print the cash for it so you can have a um, a tax credit to to do the, the green energy things we want you to do. You want to save us money on energy costs? Start drilling for oil and gas in our own country again. We We, we set the market. We can pump as much as we need to to supply our country and then some. That, you want to save us money on our energy costs, open up our pipelines. Now, of course, it wouldn't be a Democrat speech without vilifying someone. And once again, it's the corporations and the wealthy. Biden said this, I'm not looking to punish anybody, but let's make corporations and wealthy Americans start paying their fair share. Again, corporations don't pay taxes. Their customers do, sideshow Joe. If you raise taxes on corporations, they are only going to pass that cost along to the consumer, raising prices. Raise the taxes on the rich, they will move their money elsewhere. You want people to pay their fair share? I have two words, flat tax. Our tax code should fit on one side of an index card. Hell, before the 16th Amendment came along, our tax code probably came very close to fitting on an index card. You want people to pay their their fair share and the incentives and the tax breaks and the loopholes. Everyone pays 15%. That's the definition of a fair share. Now, perhaps the most laughable statement, or statements, I should say, came in this part of the speech where he was vilifying the rich and wanting everybody to pay their fair share. 
So have a good chuckle at this. Biden says, folks, and while you're at it, confirm my nominees for the Federal Reserve, which plays a critical role in fighting inflation. My plan will not only lower costs and give families a fair shot, it will lower the deficit. Pause here so you can have a good laugh at, at, <laughs> at these two statements. The Federal Reserve has helped cause this inflation with their unwillingness to raise interest rates until they finally pulled their head out of their arses and admitted what the rest of us conspiracy theorists have been saying all along, that the inflation was not transitory. The inflation, the, the Federal Reserve has, con, has done all they can to make sure inflation is not transitory. They, they, so much inaction, unbelievable. They, they, true, they, they do have a role in fighting inflation. It's, it's at the first hint where it's outstripping the target. You raise the interest rates so the money supply dries up. You know what? The Fed needs to go. That's all there is to that one. And then we have old Joe here trying to tell us his plan for more tax incentives and government intervention and government spending will lower costs and the deficit. Whatever drugs they gave him to keep him awake and on task for this speech must also have some pretty good hallucinogenic properties. If he thinks this garbage plan is going to cut costs and lower the deficit. I didn't read anywhere in his speech where he was shutting down agencies or having bake sales to raise the money he's advocating to spend for tax breaks and incentives. I didn't see him mention anywhere that they were cutting costs uh, and budgets elsewhere. His whole plan will not only raise costs, but continue to raise inflation, raise the deficit, and eventually raise taxes because there's only so much money we can print before we have to start paying it back. There's only so much money we can print before inflation gets so wildly out of control, nobody can afford anything. But this is what you get when you have economic lightweights running the show. All right, enough about the tragic comedy that was the state of denial speech. Friends, the last vestiges of the COVID narrative are collapsing. The CDC announced that they are pulling their recommendations for universal COVID-19 investigations and contact tracing. Now, this is uh, from an Epic Times piece I'll link in the description box. According to CDC, a contact tracer was expected to quickly locate and speak with individuals who tested positive for the virus, find out who they have recently been in close contact with, and then notify those people about their exposure and encourage them to enter a 14-day quarantine to prevent further transmission. Now, that was the job description of a contact tracer, according to to the CDC's vision. Well, let's be real about this whole thing. This whole contact tracing exercise was a failure. It didn't prevent anything. We weren't going to quarantine our way into eradicating the virus. People were going to catch it regardless because it's a virus and it's going to do virusy things. The whole exercise became about control. And what can we, the CDC and our 
deep state handlers get the trained SEALs in the population to do. That's all this became about. It became a social experiment to see how far we can push it so that we know where our weak points are in subjugating the population and come up with a plan to rectify that situation and bend the will of the people. That's what this became. There was no way quarantining was going to eradicate a virus. No way. The science of viruses never changed. The politics of reacting to a pandemic did. The opportunity to strip personal liberties was too big of a temptation. Like I said, too big of a social experiment here to see what we can, if we can throw enough fish at the trained seals to get them to do what we want them to do. It was too big of an opportunity for the administrative state. And they took advantage of it with a failed policy one of many, like contract, like contact tracing. We are going to see generations of people now with a healthy skepticism of government agencies, particularly Big Pharma's marketing arm, a.k.a. the CDC, and honestly, probably a Big Pharma itself. And you know what? This is a good thing. We need to ask more questions. Okay, let's finish up with a couple of stories regarding the cackling witches of the view. First. Apparently, Whoopi's suspension really didn't cause her to do any sort of deep introspection. I have a Red State article that I'll link, written by Bonchi, about how Whoopi Goldberg became indignant over Lauren Boebert heckling Joe Biden at the State of the Union address. Whoopi called Boebert little girl for daring to heckle the president. So maybe Whoopi forgot how Nancy Pelosi tore up Trump's State of the Union address. And how the lunatics on the fringe laughed, celebrated that bit of disrespect. It's just a reflex at this point with these people. They're they're hit with an S in front of it, don't stink. But everyone else's does if they're not in agreement with the liberal ideology that they spout off. Whoopi Goldberg, not a serious person. Not serious in the least. Just totally forgot everything that, you know, went on during the Trump administration. Heck, even go back to the George W. Bush administration in the disrespect and disregard the media and um, and Hollywood types had for him. I think Trump, it was more, but we still saw it during uh, George W. Bush's time as well. I, you know what, the, the overinflated sense of self-importance from these people is just absolutely disgusting. Quit listening to them. They're, they're not serious. And now, kind of finishing up here, speaking of overinflated senses of importance, how about Joyless Behar, also of The View fame? Apparently, the Ukrainian crisis is putting a damper on her European travel plans. Now, she lamented on a recent episode of The Spew, about how COVID killed her Italian vacation plans. And now the Russia-Ukraine conflict is throwing more doubt about her getting to go on her Italian vacation. You know, cry me a river, Joy. People are losing their homes to Russian attacks. People are losing their businesses to Russian attacks. Ukrainians are losing their family members to Russian attacks. Children and pets and families are being displaced. There's a humanitarian crisis going on 
with this whole conflict, and all you are worried about is not getting to go to Italy. You got to be, like I said, these aren't serious people. You know what? Here's what I say. You know what, Joy? Olive Garden has a tour of Italy plate. Why don't you just head over to your local Olive Garden and order one? Maybe it'll hold you over until the things going on over in Eastern Europe calm down, and then you can finally go and, and do your Italian vacation. You know what? Uh, old Joyless here has, has uh, um, kind of inspired me here for a new segment, a new new award, the Dolt of the Month Award. You know what? She'll be our winner for February. Nudging, you know, the, the incompetent buffoons of our government, other Hollywood types, and Putin by a hair. I would say Putin probably has the inside track on March. March's award, however, here we'll see. It's it's early yet. Is uh, I'd never put it past a Hollywood type to say something just so absolutely obnoxious and stupid that you know manages manages to bump it. You know what? I'll I'll take uh you know message me too as we go through the month. It might be fun. Well, maybe we'll make a little poll out of it. But Joy Bay Joyless Behar. Dolt of the month for February. Her obtuseness and utter lack of situational awareness gives her the edge for February. So congratulations, Joy Behar, on being the first recipient of the Living Living with Liberty Dolt of the Month Award. Well earned for your outstanding demonstration of what it means to be completely out of touch with the three people who still watch the spew. Friends, that's my show for today. Thank you for listening. Please check out my website, livingwithlibertypodcast.com. There you'll find links to my past shows, my original articles, as well as other resources to help arm you with knowledge in fighting off the prevailing narratives of the day. While on my website, shop my store, Living With Liberty Outfitters. Lastly, I'd be so grateful if you shared, subscribed, and left a positive review of the show. Should your listening platform allow, from what I understand, Spotify is doing, uh, allowing reviews now. So if you listen on Spotify, please review us there. Subscribing helps us move up the charts and helps more people find the truth. I appreciate you spending part of your day with me. Please help us spread the truth by sharing my show and website with friends and family as well as on your social media accounts. My website is livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Also, let's connect. Follow me on Parlor. My handle is at livingwithliberty. You can also email me. The address is ryan at livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Liberty isn't a given. We must fight to protect it. Working together, we will do exactly that. Until next time.